Thank you for all being here. Um, so let's get into it. If you would open up your Bibles to Psalm 64. Um, I know it was just read a moment ago, but we're going to be reading through it uh, several more times here as we go. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's an age-old limerick. Sometime in the last 200 years, somebody coined that. We know that it is trying to say, hey, no big deal. Someone just said words. It's not like they hurt your body. It's an encouragement. It's meant to be, it's even a parenting tool to encourage people when things are said about them that is untrue or hurtful. But can we be honest? It's not true, is it? Now, we know that words do hurt. Every single person that is watching and listening to this knows that there have been times when they've been hurt by words. So what do we do with those words? And, and why is it that way? Words have power. God started all of this with words. In the beginning was the word. He spoke all of life into existence. So words have power. Words transfer ideas. They can speak life and they can speak death. They can heal and, yes, they can hurt me. Words can wound and steal. Gossip and slander bring cheap thrills to those who say it, while at the same time exploiting and objectifying others. False testimony can say things that misrepresent caricature, malign people, malign fellow humans. Words of condemnation and accusation and cutting sarcasm belittle and discourage and shame. Words are good, though. Words can bring healing. Words can have a healing power. Communities and families, they thrive when members notice and praise verbally, out loud, those things in others. Our churches celebrate, as a hallmark of our churches, this idea of spirit-filled brothers and sisters praising each other, lifting up each other, encouraging each other. A timely rebuke for someone who is sliding towards sin can be um, helpful and life-saving for a self-destructive pattern that we find. Grace-filled words can also lead people to a knowledge of Christ. The Great Commission, go and tell. So words have power. Now, I bring this up because as we're looking at this psalm, it's a final psalm in a series of psalms going back all the way to Psalm 52. So we got to remember a little bit um, the psalms that we touched on last summer and also the psalms that we've done already. So this is a series of psalms. David is spending his time talking about his enemies and what they're doing and how they're attacking him. And this is the last psalm. And, and I like to think that David saved what was most important for the very last. And what did he say? He didn't say, Lord, protect me from the sword that's going to cut me. He didn't say, protect me from the army that is more advanced than I am. He says, protect me from the words of those who are after me. That's why David saves us for last, because words have power, and they can be used to hurt. So what do we do with that? We're going to answer that. 
Well, Psalm 63 last week that Eric taught on, the enemies were kind of on the outside and the focus was on God. Psalm 64 flips that, and it starts with the enemies being the focus and then finishes with God, really kind of tying off this section um, as we look at God as the solution. So our main idea, God's children don't have anything to fear from the wicked when they trust in God for deliverance. So this psalm is a lament. The word lament means a feeling of expressing sorrow or grief. Uh, Literally, when it says, hear my complaint, that word complaint is lament. Laments are used throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's an entire book of the Bible that's one big, long lament. Lament is more than just the catharsis of releasing emotion and, and just, you know, blah, letting it all out. It's actually a form of doxology which is a churchy way of saying a word of praise. This is a form of worship. It's a form of praise. They remind us of the truth, these laments, and they are a way for us to express our faith. So these laments in the Bible, this whole category of psalms, have three parts to them. The first part is that it's a cry to God. They cry out to God. Now, in our psalm, this is just a few words. In other psalms, this can take a whole four, five, ten verses. The second part is asking God for help. Ours is a little bit longer on this. Other psalms are shorter. It depends on the psalm. And then last is the response. The responding in trust and in praise. So let's look at how that breaks down in our psalm, and then we're going to walk through it. So first, the cry to God. This is the petition. This is verse 1, the first part. Asking God for help. This is verses 2 through 6. Prayer for the protection from the enemies. And then... Responding in trust is verses 7 through 9. And and really, it's David saying, here's why we can trust God. He doesn't just leave us alone and say, oh, trust in him because he's great, which would be correct. But he says, trust in him, and here's why. And then finally, responding in praise. And this is the rejoicing and the encouragement that we see in verse 10. So let's dig into this. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Now, the God here is is the word Elohim, and the word complaint is lament or meditation. We've talked about that. We'll we'll dig into that in a second. But this word hear, it starts the whole psalm off with hear. Now, this is not just simply, hey, would you listen and then go do something else? No, this is an imperative. It's calling for action. It says, respond to me, answer me, do something. So David is not just saying, hey, Lord, just listen, and that's all I need. He's saying, I need you to do something, Lord. This word complaint is actually used in the Bible in the Old Testament 14 times, five times in Job and five times in Psalms, and every single one of them, it is translated as complaint. When you you look at the definition in the Hebrew, it goes to the word lament. So these words are used interchangeably. Now, the Probably the better definition for complaint, if we really want to kind of get into the nuances of it, is it's troubling thoughts. It's this idea of thoughts that kind of bother. Interestingly, in the uh, other places in the Old Testament that use it, it's translated as meditate. And I thought that was interesting. So what David is saying is he's saying, hear my complaint, hear my thoughts that linger, that won't go away, that keep coming back. 
kind of like when, you, when, when, you, when you're doing something that involves manual labor and you're just not thinking about anything and your mind is kind of clear and you're just working on what's in front of you and then you stop doing that thing, where does your mind wander to? That's what David's talking about. He's talking about something that just constantly comes up and he's worried about. It's kind of chaotic, right? So David sees his need and he feels helpless, but he takes it to the Lord so that he doesn't feel hopeless. That's the exact opposite of what someone who doesn't know the Lord does. They feel helpless, they feel hopeless, and then they try to fix the situation themselves. But David doesn't do that. He takes it straight to God. So then the next part, so we've got the cry to God, which is the petition, part one. Now we're in part two, asking God for help. So we'll finish verse one and go all the way through six now. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search, for the inward mind and the heart of man are deep. So right there in the second part of verse 1, we see this dread and we, we see this conspiracy and this group of wicked. David's outnumbered. He, he's clearly outnumbered. There's maybe some people say three different groups here, maybe four, maybe two, but it doesn't matter. There's more than one person and they're all after him. So David begins his requests, his asking of God for help. The first one is to preserve or protect me from the enemy. Now notice it says, protect my life from the dread of the enemy. This word dread is also translated as the word fear. But it's not the kind of fear that we have that's a constructive or even a sobering fear, right? That, that, that moment of fear when a child is walking into a street and you go, and you grab it, you, you don't stop, you actually get that extra adrenaline, you go do something. That's not the fear that was being talked about here which is why the, the translation said dread. This is a fear that's immobilizing. It, it makes you stop doing anything. And David says, Lord, preserve me. Keep me from being immobilized by the fear of my enemies. Now, I was struck by this, that the easiest way for God to protect David would be to pull David out of this situation or get rid of his enemies. But David doesn't ask for that. Doesn't it make sense for David to ask for that? Lord, could you zap my enemies? Boink, they're gone, right? Or beam me up and take me over here and hide me. But he doesn't do that. What a strange mindset. Don't take them away, but protect me in their midst. See, David understands that he must be in the midst of his enemies. And we see this later on when Jesus says, love your enemies. Because ultimately, David, I think, maybe recognizes that these wicked need God just as much as he does. And there's love there. He cares for them. These enemies also could be people from his own, his own kingdom. It doesn't say who they are. But it is interesting that David doesn't ask for them to be destroyed. He asks for protection from them. His second request is to hide him from the wicked. Hide me from the wicked. Conceal, hide. They're all going to try to overthrow. They're trying, they're plotting to take him out. And yet David says, just hide me. 
And what's interesting here is you can kind of see that even though verses 1 and 2 kind of start off with this uh, fear, my, my impression is that it really doesn't get too big of hooks into David. Because as soon as David starts talking to God about it, you start to see that as he asks for protection, the fear melts away. Um, it's kind of like a child who crawls into the hands of their daddy and, and just being near to daddy makes the fears go away. I'm reminded of my kids who in the middle of the night when sounds, of dream, sounds or dreams are scary, they run into my room to be close to me or my wife to know that there is protection there. They don't ask for a, explain to me why this dream is not bad or that sound is just the dripping or this. They, they just want to be near. And, and David, by drawing near to God, is getting some of what he's asking for just by being close to him. Now, it started in verses 1 and 2 to ask. Now in 3, 4, 5, and 6, he's describing the enemies. Now, he doesn't need to do this. God knows it all. But David is describing the enemies to remind himself when they compare him to God, the enemies don't have any game. They don't have anything going for them. Verse 3, they wet their tongues. Now this means to sharpen. Okay, wet's like where you, where you sharp, sharpen it like a sword. And then the tongues doesn't mean they're literal tongues, even though that would be kind of fun to watch, right? It, it's speech. They aim their bitter arrows at him. They're preparing their words. That word aim is a word for notching your arrow and getting ready to shoot. Notice it's lots of arrows and it's lots of swords. This is not a one and done attack. They're, they're going to war here against David. And that bitter word, right? It's poisonous, malicious, slanderous accusations that are so bad that when David is, is said, they say this about David, people that are not a part of this conspiracy are going to attack David as well. That's the kind of the picture of these words here. And then verse 4, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Now, David wants us to see clearly that this is a surprise. Okay, this is not David sinning and having the, 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 the wicked point out his sin, like sometimes happens. But instead, this is David. He's not doing anything wrong, and they're lying about him, which is why it's such a surprise. David's not doing anything wrong, but he's attacked and lied about. These attackers had to do was utter this lie and then the group of people, the wicked, will start attacking him while they keep their distance. Now, this idea of him being blameless, now this does not mean that David didn't sin. And nor does it ever mean that. It's this, ver this word is used for Job, it's used for Noah, it's used for Abraham. These men are all sinful. They sin. The difference is, is that in this it was a lie that David hadn't done. See, those who believe in the Lord, who live according to his word, know how to deal with sin, to maintain a relationship with God. It's by confessing our sin. It's not enough to confess our sin once at the beginning of a Christian life. It's continual. Martin Luther said, all of the Christian life is repentance. It means we're constantly repenting because as the Lord is cleaning us out, that Holy Spirit is saying, this is a sin and this is a sin. We got to deal with it. So, they are righteous. The, the people that confess their sins are righteous. And they're the ones that are being attacked. Ultimately, the, the Bible says that the, the, the perfect, this blameless, applies fully to God and not to us. But the righteous, according to God's word, are also called to be perfect and innocent. And God will not cast away an innocent person. Which is why 
David is bringing this to his attention. He's saying, I am innocent of what they're, what they're saying I did, what they're accusing me of, and God is going to put, put it to rest. He's going to take care of it. And then last, I want to point out, they were not afraid. There was no fear in them. They did not fear God. They didn't fear anything. They thought they had this great plan. They have it all laid out. And yeah, I'm not afraid of God. Verse 5, they hold fast to their evil purposes, saying, who can see them? Now, I don't know if they're mocking God's omniscience, his ability to see everything. But even if they aren't, and they're just saying, we're going to get away with this, they really aren't. Because like Hagar said in Genesis 16, 13, that God is the God who sees, the one who sees. There's nothing hidden from them. So as these wicked people are, are planning their conspiracy, they're leaving out one important thing. They're leaving out the fact that there is a God. And that lack of fear and that lack of fear of his justice is going to derail their plans pretty severely. So they think they've planned for everything. It says hold fast to their evil purpose. That just means they're secured. We've thought of everything, right? They had their little, you know, conspiracy meeting and they said, well, what about this? What about this? And they walked through and they said, we got this. This is a great plan. They set up a snare, which is a term that's a trap to catch birds. And usually many times the trap would kill the bird or at least maim them. So this is what they're planning to do with David. And it's interesting that they're in a group because I wonder if they would have felt so courageous if they were one-on-one -on -one with the guy who took out Goliath. I don't think they would have been as confident. Verse 6, they search out injustice, saying, we've accomplished a diligent search. Now that translated in another version said they disguised a well-conceived plot. So they've laid the trap, they've covered it up, so David can't see it. They're trying to trap him. This arrogance, right? They pat themselves on the back and say, we've done it, this is working. So they create, that's what that search word in verse 6, they create a plan to destroy. How opposite is that of God? God creates to give life. They're creating to destroy, to kill, to, to maim. And the final line of verse 6, the psalmist's summary of the wicked. The psalmist can't see the bottom of the heart, but God can. And I love this quote, just when they, the wicked, think that they are near to achieving their secret and evil goal, they are nearest at that point to the judgment of God, for he will preserve the righteous. So we're halfway through the psalm. David has prayed that God would conceal him from the wicked conspiracy. He laments, remember, that's those troubled thoughts that never leave, that are kind of always stirring about. He laments how the wicked are secretly preparing their slanderous attack, how a violent group is raging against him because of the fact that they said these lies about him, and their pride is on display, thinking they've gotten away with it. So that leads David to the third part, which is the responding in trust and in praise. So verses 7 through 9, we get to see why do we trust God? What is he going to do? But God... I love that. But God. That's the best two words, right? But God shoots his arrow at them. And they are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues, turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. What a change of tone in this psalm. So 
there's this swirling chaos. Everything is going crazy. There's all these lies. Remember, it's not one lie. It's lots of lies. It's arrows, swords, like tongues, going all over the place. It's just chaos. And then, but God, he brings it right down to it. And he is the foundation, the solid, the dependable, the one that is not moved by the storm. And isn't that where we are at sometimes? Maybe even right now. That's just, just all this chaos and what's right, what's wrong. I don't know what to think, but God. And one of the pastors, as we were meeting to discuss about this from another church, he said, it's like, boom, God. And I loved that. I just, that idea that God is turning the tables. He is bringing judgment and deliverance. The psalmist now confidently states that although the enemy comes out of nowhere and it seems like he's going to win, God will flip it on its head suddenly same word as in verse four so this is a surprise it's a sneak attack there will be shock just like the innocent when they said what i david goes ah i didn't do anything what are they coming at me for well these wicked will go what what's happening here because the one they did not account for the one who is god of the universe was left out of their carefully laid plans see this is a battle and this battle is whose words are more powerful. Is it God and his powerful decree or is it the wicked and their malicious lies? Whose words are more powerful? And guys, this is not a fair fight. God wins. I love this. It says God shoots his arrow, right? So the wicked, they're doing, you know, 10, 20, 30, I don't even know how many arrows. They're shooting a plethora of arrows at them and God uses one. His aim is spot on. He nails it the first time. So the shooters are the shot. The destroyers are the destroyed. Now, it's important, and I, I want to get this right here at the very onset of this section, is that we don't see a when this happens. Now, let me explain what that means. David doesn't say, as soon as they go to this point with their lies, immediately God steps in. That's not in this psalm at all. What David is reminding himself as he says this psalm is that God's justice is going to prevail. He doesn't promise that it's going to be six months, six years, 60 years, or in our lifetime, or even that we'll see it. It's that constant refrain in the Bible of already not yet. Like we can't quite see it yet, but it's promised. And God, because he is that solid oak that will not be moved, he promised it, it will happen. So we need to remember that. Also, God uses the same means. There's arrow, suddenly, and tongue, right? It takes the enemy 10 lines to explain all of their complex plans, and God does it in one. He says, there it is, right there. How fast God counters them and their complex schemes is the story of this psalm. God doesn't need to scheme. He just does it. That's his power. He doesn't need to scheme. He just has action, and he does it. They thought they were so smart. They thought they were well hidden. But God's sudden ambush demonstrates they're not smarter than God. Indeed, their little plans do not even require God to break a sweat or to even extend any effort. Verse 8, they're brought to ruin. Their own tongues turned against them. All who see will wag their heads. Now, this is not wagging like a dog when you scratch its back. This is shaking their heads and just going, oh, man, really? 
Now the how of how God's going to take care of this is laid out. Their own tongues will bring about their destruction. I'm reminded of Haman in the book of Esther who planned out how he was going to destroy the Jews and then he was destroyed by the same exact means. The malicious charges will be brought down on them. Now, notice it's not David who does this. David doesn't say, well, God's going to bring them low and I'm going to be the one that does it. Instead, he says, God does this. This is above our pay grade. It's not our job to go and bring their words to bear on them and to destroy them with them. That's God's job. Now, this psalm is not a psalm about violence. The parallel here is you get what you give. God did to them as they had planned to do to the weaker party, to his party. God is a God, not of vengeance in this psalm, but of justice in God's kingdom. Everyone, and I mean everyone, gets what they deserve. That's terrifying, unless you're in Christ. This is God's perfect justice. We reap what we sow, and this should terrify us unless we're in Christ. The unbelievers should be trembling before this God because ultimately, whatever they've done is going to come back onto them. Whereas we as believers should fall to our knees and praise the Lord for His grace and His mercy that He's protecting us from the repercussions of us of our own sin, of the thing we deserve, Christ took in our place. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So all will see, the ones who truly see, will, score, will, will heap scorn onto these wicked people for what they have done. Verse 9, all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. So all means every single person will fear. That means to stand in awe. This is the, wow, that's impressive. And then declare what God has done. So this striking of fear, it causes them to really reassess their place in the world. There's no way to explain what happens to these wicked people based on natural or deceptive means, but instead it's, it's clear. It's God. All people will fear. And see, that's where a lot of people how they've come to the Lord is they had no fear, so no fear, no fear of God, no fear of his justice, and then God breaks that, and then they have fear, they fear his justice, and then they find Christ. And that's a progression many non-believers do go through. Because ultimately, and I think this is kind of a sub-point, but at the same time might be the main point, is that God is after the hearts of the wicked. God wants to save the wicked. And the only way they can be saved is they must fear God first. Because if you don't know how wretched you are, then the good news is not good news. God is after David's enemies' hearts. Maybe David gets this, and that's why he doesn't ask for the removal from the midst of them. Maybe he doesn't. But either way, when we see our enemies through the eyes of our Savior, there's no way we can return what they've done to us to them. Imagine if our world was all about love your enemy. Pray for them. Whether it be someone that you disagree with online, whether it be someone that has a completely different political stance than you, whether it is a terrorist bent on killing you. Imagine if we loved them and in their midst were able to point them to God. Imagine what that would do with our world. When people are wicked, when they, when, when the, sorry, when people see the wicked receive the punishment due them, their attitude is one 
that is correct. It's characterized by fear of God and then worship. And the righteous are to, to look to God and say, He protected me. He did it. Praise be to Him. And they offer worship. And this is that trust leading to worship. Because fear is a legitimate motivator. In the Bible, we see that, that God uses this to draw people out of themselves and into a correct relationship with Him. Fear is a huge concept. Fear is different for the wicked than it is for the children of God. For us, fear is that God is bigger and stronger and He's powerful, but He's for us, right? But the wicked, He's terrifying because He's not for them. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. According to the Bible, and I'll go through this quick, the fear of the Lord gives us a lot of things as believers. It is the beginning of wisdom, Psalm 111. It's wisdom, Job 28. It's instructions for wisdom, Proverbs 15. It's the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1. It prolongs our life, this fear of God, Proverbs 10. It's a fountain of life, Proverbs 14. It leads to life. Are we getting the theme here? This is life. It's a treasure, Isaiah 33. It's a strong confidence, Proverbs 14. It is better than the greatest treasure, Proverbs 15. It is the knowledge of God, Proverbs 2. It blesses us. It makes us blessed. And this is all over the place in the Psalms. It is clean and is enduring forever. It is the action of one who walks in upright, and it is a thing to be learned. And that's just a few of the choicest views of this fear of the Lord. So fear is the starting place. And so David's enemies need to fear the Lord so that they can have a relationship with him. It is the goal of what God is doing here. And so the wicked are to fear. We are to respond with words. We're to respond with words. Look at this. It's, it's not shooting arrows to defend God. The congregation will tell of his works. That's speak it, declare it, yell it. And then instead of thinking out plans, we instead ponder his works. So the fourth part, responding in praise. Verse 10, let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. I love this, this, this verse. Let the righteous one rejoice. That word is delight. It's like so much joy that you can't help but giggle, right? And as a big adult man, giggling sounds ridiculous, but that's where we go with this joy that we get from God stepping in and defending us. We take refuge in, which means to trust in, put my faith in. And then I love this. Let all the upright in heart exult. That word exult means to shine, right? We are to rejoice in praise so that we are shining. We renew our trust in him. So David says that the righteous are buffeted. The righteousness are not responding in fear to God, but instead they're responding in joy. We do not fear those who can hurt us because we understand who is for us. The righteous will enjoy eternal life through the resurrection. And that's nothing that anything that is said or done to us on earth can take away. The wicked, on the other hand, will face eternal judgment, and there's nothing they can do to escape that until they fear God and repent. Truly, the reaction of God's justice will be joy for all of us through worship. So, what does this tell us? How, how, does, how do we get our minds around this? Well, 
First thing is, is if we're in Christ, if you are a fellow believer in Jesus Christ and you have that relationship with him, then we are to rejoice and worship in humility and compassion as we are defended by our God. When God's children, that's us, are terrorized by evil men for righteousness' sake, he will show himself strong as a deliverer and an avenger. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we don't get what we deserve. And so that should temper how we pray for God's retribution. Yes, you know what? It hurts when people say things about you that are untrue. It has happened to me many times. And I know it's happened to you. And we may pray, Lord, get them. But ultimately, where we need to go is we need to go, Lord, get them, but not destroy them. Instead, get them and turn them into a child of God because that's what will change them. That's what will change the situation. So we are clothed with humility and compassion for those who hurt us. So this is not a psalm of vengeance, but one of balance, where those who hurt others get their acts brought back on them. God comes in to set the world right. And for Christians, this is good news of the second coming. God comes not to destroy the ruthless, but to set the world back in balance. This is the hope that we cling to when we see the suffering of the righteous ones at the hands of those who are wicked. I'm reminded of a quote that I heard the other day. And uh, someone asked Eric, Pastor Eric, or said, I can't wait for the world to be like it used to be. And Eric very wisely in response said, I can't wait for the world to be as it will be. Meaning that the world is going to come to a place where everything sad is going to come untrue. And that's the hope that we have. We have our hope grounded in that immovable object of God and that his righteousness and his justice is going to prevail. And that is our hope. And that was David's hope as he took on these words, these things hitting him, and ultimately that's where we need to be. And we need to rejoice in that. So join with me um, as we pray here and then as we worship. Let's, let's blow the roof off of our homes as we worship these last few songs and then go and spread the joy to our neighbors. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for this book. Thank you for this psalm, Lord, that you inspired David to write so long ago but is so incredibly pertinent to what is going on with us right now. Lord, I pray that it would, it would do a work in us and that it would grow in us a trust in you and a praising in you that no matter what the world throws at us, God, but God is on our side. He is there to defend Lord, build up a compassion in us for our, the enemies, the people that come after us, and that we would respond with love and prayer for those enemies of ours. Lord, do that work. Start it right here in New Life, all three campuses, and then spread it out to our communities. Lord, let's, let's have your will be done and your name praised in these communities and these neighborhoods. Lord, we praise you in your name. Amen.